On the 1st of June, 1830, 1381, sorry. He called in... Yeah, I know. I was going to say, like, I I, I respect the sort of, you know, overall survey, but I think that's a little bit of a chronological jump. The people trusted the plan for 400 years. (laughs) Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about... Dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Howdy, howdy. Been a while. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of major events and the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have? This time on the podcast. Well, this week on our this, I don't even know what segments of time we're recording anymore. This indeterminate amount of time on We Talk About Dead People, we'll be covering a man known as Watt Tyler and his role in the English Peasants Revolt of 1381. Yes, because it's about time I researched a topic that has nothing to do with the CIA, allegedly. We'll see. It'll be good for you to stop thinking about Antarctica and MK Ultra for one goddamn minute. How maybe it'll bring you back down to Earth a little bit. Uh, space is fake. Then why do you spend all your time there in your mind? Good question. <laughs> no, no. You know, I just I've had enough. I refuse to stand by and watch you watch you just destroy yourself. So. Get some books together, drink a little tea, don't take any weird pills, and just calm the fuck down. Uh, alright, alright, but what about the dumbs in Cube Earth? What will happen to the world if we don't catch Hillary Clinton in the sewers? Literally nothing will change. So, take off the tinfoil hat, you know, put put away the laundry, maybe make, you know, fold your, uh, I don't know, whatever the fuck, clean your room, go away. <laughs> Uh, alright, well I guess that tinfoil hat was getting a little hot anyway. Hey, maybe the tinfoil hat meme was designed to make us bake our brains by thinking too hard and conducting extra heat through the tin! God damn it. What happens when you piss off a whole bunch of your own people by taxing them to death during a deadly pandemic to fund wars that nobody wants to fight? Joining us this week to answer that question is the leader of the 1381 Peasants' Revolt, Watt Tyler. So, George, if you were to choose a high-tech gadget to take back to medieval times to stun the nobility... What gadget would you choose, and how would you usurp the power of legitimate kings with your newfound technocracy? Well, the the prime, you know, issue there is you need something that would be reverse engineerable, because, you know, you hear all these these idiots making memes and stuff about, like, bringing a, you know, phone or something back in time, but it's like, man, there's not going to be Wi-Fi. Like, it's going to be useless. It's going to be a weird-looking, shiny paperweight. So you need something that can actually be reverse-engineered with the time. So mm. probably, honestly, some... Mm, probably some mechanical, maybe farming implements that are more efficient than uh, than the moldboard plows they were using in the Middle Ages. That way they can be reverse-engineered, 
recreated and with a, you know, 15% increase on agricultural gains in the long run, we will quickly develop economic dominance over our neighbors. <laughs> there you go. See, that's that's thinking it through um, a lot more than I would, because I would probably just bring back a PlayStation and then be surprised then when they don't have wall outlets. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could, like, they can make wire, so if you could find a way to generate enough electricity you'd probably have to have several people running in a hamster wheel while constantly while you play maybe what i'd do is i'd bring back a hand crank projector and basically become the wizard of oz wait are you gonna bring a t a, a tv to go with the playstation or just the playstation <laughs> no <laughs> no like, man, i'm changing a, my answer <laughs> if i had a tv to hook this up to you guys would be impressed as you just have all these people running in a hamster wheel so that the little light goes on on the box. <laughs> and you just I am the emperor now. <laughs> They're just watching Netflix. Oh, I guess I can't make that joke anymore. The, the outrage was high this week against Netflix, wasn't it? It's about damn time. Right, right. I canceled mine last year for the exact same reason everyone's canceling it now. I'm like, didn't you guys see this last year? This was here last year, but I don't want to talk about that because it's just the outrage of the week. And by the time this comes out, people will have forgotten about it and they will not have canceled their Netflix. But first, computer, please bring up Watt Tyler and all the historical figures associated with his hilarious name. All right, there we go. And George, if you would, please describe the man in the picture below, if you would be so kind. I like how you drew the very, very crude red arrow pointed to him. Like that's, yeah, that's, you want That's good. Like you should have put like three more arrows and some circles and stuff just to make sure I didn't miss him. Well, <clears throat> I'll have you know that's the seventh try at drawing <laughs> that red arrow with my mouse. So <laughs> that's wow. as high quality as it gets. Yeah, that's amazing. I had no idea your coordination was that shitty. <laughs> Wow. It is. <laughs> so anyway, the the dude the dude with the red arrow. Um, well, he 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 looks kind of sad to be honest. Yeah, like he's just sort of a he's on a horse. Um, and this is a medieval manuscript drawing or painting, so it's uh you know it's very two dimensional. But this little dude's on the horse. He's got um some sort of hat which looks kind of like that weird mystical thing with towels that women do with their hair. That nobody's, you know, sure the secret of. He's got this right. sort of wraparound <laughs> hat thing that's tied on one end. Um, he looks very, very sad. You can tell because his eyebrows are, you know, slanting down at the ends. He seems to be trying to draw his sword while a man on a horse next to him. He's on a horse, by the way. A man on a horse next to him who has a slight variation on the towel hair hat seems to be about to clobber him with a falchion. However, it's all right because his horse is giving an absolutely withering look to the other dude's horse as they stand next to each other. Like, that, that is honestly the most detestation and hate I have ever seen in a horse's face. Like, his horse is so over it. <laughs> I was going to say, you were saying, he looks sad. I was going to say, the other guy looks sad. Like, I'm sorry I have to hit you with this falchion, buddy. <laughs> but also, all the horses look sad, too. Well, no, his horse doesn't look sad. His horse looks angry. 
The horse, the horse on the edge of the frame on the right looks kind of sad. Yeah, I think this is the cover art we're going to use for this episode. Good, and, and he's using a falchion, not a sword. What do you think of the cosmonauts behind him? Um, that's a pretty standard, you know, 14th century. Um, they sometimes call that a frog mouth helmet. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, no, I thought they looked like space aliens, and I was trying to get back onto the whole. Um, I I, I, <laughs> I could tell that. See, and you, you notice I just ignored it. I just completely <laughs> ignored it. As you can see, the aliens are literally behind this. <laughs> Clearly. All right. Well, thank you very much for that description. Um, I would say that was apt. A plus for you. Thank you, thank you. <sighs> You're welcome. You deserved it. I don't give out A's very often in this class, but you've you've really earned it this time. All right, so shall we just get into it then? Please do. I'm I've already read the first uh, first little line there of the not script, and I I'm very curious. I've got to say. Yeah. So. You might be asking yourself, why this story? Who the hell is Watt Tyler? And what does he have to do with the Cheetos mascot? Well, these are all legitimate questions, and we'll be answering each of them in due time. But for now, we're going to start the episode with a little bit of context, which ah, is to say... Man after my own heart. Yep, the majority of this episode is context. I don't even think Watt Tyler makes an appearance <laughs> at all. Because when I started looking into this, uh, the only thing I wanted to do was cover a guy named Watt. That's literally the only reason I bookmarked his name. And as I was going through this story, I realized the sheer enormity of it. And I, it was one of those situations, again, where I had to keep reining myself in and looking for the through line. And it just so happened that Watt Tyler only comes up at the very end of the story. Well, at the very end. He's, he's in there. But um, the the events surrounding the appearance of this man's life at all in history are way the hell bigger than Watt Tyler. Watt Tyler in the historical record didn't exist at all before uh, the story we're going to talk about today. And he only exists within the story. That's how small of a character he is. But um, with all that being said, let's begin. Excellent. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, getting a, getting kind of a, out of proportion. I mean, you remember how the whole four-part Ireland episode started out as one episode on James Connolly? Yeah, it's and true. And then we just it's needed true. context and, uh, you know, before and after, and it just became that. Uh, how long is all four episodes back-to-back? Because -back? some of them were kind of long, too. It's probably uh, like eight hours. <laughs> yeah, it was hours and hours and hours of free content for our beloved listeners. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Graciously supported by our patrons. So all I'm saying is if you want to do like an eight-part series on 14th century England, I'm not going to stand in your way. Well, I almost did make this a multi-part episode, but... And I still might. There might be a part two to this. Because the way the story ends is sort of... Let's just put it this way. The 1300s were a strange time for England. <laughs> Um, because in the latter half, in, the, in say, 1381, England was coming to the end of a very long, arduous road. And, as it goes with all stories from history, it's quite hard to pin down where exactly that road began. Because, after all, we didn't start the fire. Everyone knows <laughs> it was Senjaya from American Idol. But, uh, nobody remembers Senjaya. Anyway, 
So yes, in regards to the history of England, uh, what you get is, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, you get wars, successions, taxing problems, infrastructure, infrastructure problems, and other various little bits of conflict that generate new paradigms. Uh, there was really no time in English history where things were just sort of stuck. It was always either developing or redeveloping, whether that was in trade, martial matters, systems of political control, etc. And even the so-called Dark Ages saw a lot of developments in art, literature, religious structures, and more. I know you like to add things about the Dark Ages whenever they get brought up, so... I will give you that option. Well, right I mean, now, we're this like. we're talking about England, so we can call it the Dark Ages. I don't give a shit. That's always the Dark Ages in it's England. It's always the Dark Ages on that accursed isle. The sun never rises on the British. <laughs> God, it's like it's like Dark and Orlando after the uh after you kill the the goddess or whatever in Dark Souls. Oh no, I know. Well, it could be said that there was no time when the Anglosphere was not Having significant developments, whether positive or negative, it was kind of always um, up in the air, at least up until Winston Churchill rolled onto the scene in a cloud of cigar smoke and stinking of champagne. Uh, he certainly fixed everything and set Britain aright for a thousand years, as it turned out. A pox be upon the man. Amen. But of course, <laughs> but of course, blaming Winston Churchill for all of modern society's ills isn't quite fair. Because throughout the history of England, one will observe that the island experienced many of the same problems again and again. It's almost as if they keep running into the same freaking issues with their culture and people. It's very interesting. One particular pattern comes with its technological advancement in this pattern, which I started picking up a little bit on while I was looking into this. A new, de uh, new technology develops. Conditions will briefly improve for the working class. And then some elitist buzzards fly in and somehow make things worse than they were before. And when I say technology, I don't mean necessarily like anything of a mechanical nature. It could be it could be like a new kind of plow or just a new system of politics. They couldn't figure out what the heck they wanted to be. They couldn't figure out what church they wanted to be a part of. It's just, it's a whole thing. I mean, I think at one point they were not Vikings or they were Vikings. I mean, they don't even know. Um, but anyway... So the paradigm was in a constant uh, flux, depending on who was invading, who the English wanted to invade, where the English wanted to trade, and eventually the absolute state of anglicized Christianity. A pox be upon it. <laughs> Amen. Yep. So this constant pressure cooker was the kind of thing that kept England percolating and embroiling itself in new scandals, wars, bastardry, and other terrible things, and rarely, if ever, did it ever, ever stop. The only thing that could stop the English from clod-hopping their way into a new wacky adventure or some other such nonsense, it seemed, was a literal act of God, or several, depending on how you look at it. But the act of God, which we'll be talking about today, was more like a grape shot than an individual cannonball. It was like a grape shot of full-size cannonballs. Um, and this grape shot of God's wrath can be classified as literally the entirety of the 14th century. Because it was... It was a whole thing. Um, it was a pretty bad. I'm, it was a pretty bad time. It was not good because at the beginning of the 1300s, England was actually coming off the tail end of a period of great development and increase in power. The population was the biggest it had ever been, absolutely booming. The life expect expectancy of a noble was about 35 years, which is huge. And by the way, that has mostly to do with infant mortality. That's why it's so low. There were people who actually did get really old, 
A lot of people hear average life expectancy and they go, ha they didn't live past 35. It's like, no, most of the children didn't la live past like one. Yeah, and <laughs> so I think that, that really brings down your average. It's like the, there were certain milestones where every time you passed one, your chance of survivability greatly increased. It was like two weeks, one year, and five years. Those were sort mm -hmm. of, at each time, you had a significantly higher chance expectancy from there so once you made it past if you made it past five you were actually pretty likely to you know live into your 50s or 60s yeah yeah that's kind of a that's kind of the way it is with a lot of like um well when you're living i would say a more uh eh, i don't know a less guarded life perhaps in any capacity because so like one thing i learned raising chickens was that you should just expect at least one or two to die <laughs> really really young for no reason um, and you shouldn't even worry about it. Um, but once you make it past a certain mark, you know, you can live, expect to live a full life. But uh, it, people are no different from chickens. That's what I'm saying. At least not the English. <laughs> ha! 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 Uh, uh. Anyway, unfortunately for the English and fortunately for the rest of the world, um, the Great Famine of 1315 was on its way. Due to bad weather potentially caused by a volcanic eruption in New Zealand, uh, it would just not stop raining in England. Uh, these rains would effectively drown out crop production from 1315 to 1317, which is a really long time when you're agrarian. Life expectancy for nobility dropped about five years, and there were many reports of the elderly among the lower classes foregoing meals so that the next generation could eat. Kind of like the opposite of a baby boomer, but there were also <laughs> reports... That was mean. But there were also I mean, reports of... Fair. There were also reports of some adults abandoning their children in the forest because they couldn't feed them, which gave rise to the Hansel and Gretel story template that had multiple origins. I was actually looking into it. It's very interesting. Uh, and also, of course, the proto-boomer character template of the father figure who only accepts his children back when they find a house made of candy. <laughs> so. when, they, when they find a, a condo in Florida made of candy. <laughs> All right, and cattle and sheep could not be fed, so most of them were slaughtered. Um, but since there was a salt shortage, most of the meat couldn't be preserved in the usual fashion. And trying to boil down brine to salt was pretty hard to do in the humidity that the rain produced. And peasants and serfs who had no food reserves of their own would suffer the greatest losses of any of the classes. So 10 to 25% of city-dwelling people died of starvation, malnutrition, or murder as crime shot through the roof in response to this desperation. These conditions were not native to England, of course, but spread to much of Western Europe and even reached some parts of darkest Poland. <laughs> but obviously, yeah. <laughs> but obviously the ruling class did what it could to minimize or capitalize on the problems caused by the famine, because, you know, that's what they do. But they didn't really uh, start feeling the squeeze themselves until they, too, were literally starving. In the meantime, social unrest and dissatisfaction with both nobility and clergy was beginning to rise, producing poems and rhymes like the famous one I have included below. Would you mind reading this for us? Oh, certainly, certainly. <clears throat> when God saw that the world was so overproud, he sent a dearth upon earth and made it full hard. Don't... Are those supposed to rhyme? Uh, I think with an accent they do. Okay. He sent a dearth on earth and made it full hard. A bushel of wheat was at four shillings or more, of which men might have had a quarter before. And then they turned pale who had laughed so loud, and they all became and they became all docile who before were so proud. 
A man's heart might bleed for to hear the cry of poor men who called out, Alas, for hunger I die. <laughs> Your take. I mean, that's... Uh, other than proud and hard, not really rhyming, I like it, personally. I might get that mm. tattoo... I might that get, get that, you know, tattooed on my lower back. Alas, for hunger I die, or the whole thing? <laughs> the whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> Is... Would they call that a... What what has to do with starvation that rhymes with stamp? <laughs> um, a tramp camp? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know either. That's not even. All right. So this famine was bad, um, but it was only the beginning of God's wrath upon the English. Uh, for the good Lard had something else cooking up in the cosmic kitchen that was also not food. <laughs> so next on the docket was none other than the Black Death the deadliest pandemic in human history. Unfortunately, God's nuke was not a surgical strike, ho-ho, that would take out just England. The Black Death had a blast radius that would affect all of Europe, killing around half of the European population throughout the 14th century. And where did it come from? <sighs> where was it, indeed? Was it Wuhan? It probably wasn't. <laughs> it came from the mind of Bill Gates. He's a time traveler, you know. Anyway, so with this huge famine, this huge pandemic, and a yet-to-be-mentioned, ongoing, you might have heard of it, costly war called the Hundred Years' War, uh, yes, we can safely say that England at this time was certainly amidst several paradigm shifts, or at least under fire from uh, the merciful Lord himself, <laughs> trying to hold them back before they hit, hit the world. All right, so one of the major outcomes of the population reduction was the effect it had on how people earned their keep. During the population bubble uh, Europe experienced in the prior century, wages had steadily gone down because unskilled labor eventually begins to lose value when you can fire or banish people at will and just replace them with any other wagey. Hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> hmm. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's nothing there. That's nothing worth notice. But when the population was halved, landowners were forced to adjust their strategies in order to maintain operations. Before the Black Death, landlords did what they do today. They collected monetary rent. Um, but when inflation went sky high due to all these death shortages and other complicating factors, they had to transition to a labor-based model of rent. Which is why lots of peasants transitioned from working for money to working for their landlord for mere room and board, at least initially. It, this stuff, again, always in flux. Some people were still getting paid, but most people were becoming serfs. So that's nice. Um, it's gonna be a problem. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, because the working class was so badly affected and so many of them died, the value of actual labor uh, went up, and the peasants knew it, so they demanded higher compensation for their toil. Their demands were actually so high that some middle-class nobility and even some knights decided it would be less expensive to just kick the peasants off their land, till their own fields, and put their own bread on ye old table. Um, this was a widespread phenomenon, and it put a lot of peasants out of work. And, uh, you know, this was also just unheard of. These are not people who till the fields, right? Yeah, so. it's like, does a, you know, does a Wall Street executive wash his own car? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Occupy Wall Street. All right, I'm just kidding. All right, so this, of course, uh, pissed off the peasants even more because now they had no job, nowhere to live, and no skills or ability to switch fields. You see what I did there? Um, even though they would literally like, switch fields I like how lot. you don't even pause 
for me to acknowledge the joke, you just put in the acknowledgement right into the not script and then just full speed ahead. I just steamroll you sometimes. I feel sorry about that. Uh, yeah, so yeah, they, I mean, anyway, so yeah, they, so people are basically immigrating a lot. They're moving around, you know, they have to leave their home counties and move to different counties. Some move across, you know, across uh, the waters to try and find what you know whatever the river I, I can't remember what that the English Channel duh um, to find work elsewhere to live elsewhere and it's basically you're just a lot of displaced people who are poor and sick and dying during the um, greatest pandemic some ever. some poor bastards probably ended up in Birmingham <sighs> oh, oh. Uh, yeah but anyway so as you can see, these problems are as ta are tales as old as time, and the results of God's grape shot into the history of Europe can still be felt today. No doubt about it. Now, the economy did dry the fuck up for a few years when the pandemic hit, and the main problem that the English had to solve now was how to deal with population reduction. Because before God called the herd, land was getting worked like crazy in supporting bustling international trade. I say international, I know, it's... But it's between different peoples, right? So there you go. Now, uh, now that so many people had exited stage left, the land wasn't getting worked, and the landowners weren't making much money with the old system. So this means they have to change things up. So that means, of course, the authorities are going to try some weird shit, such as the Ordinance of Laborers in 1349, and the Statute of Laborers in 1351. Orders like these came from on high to attempt to make the old system work inside the new paradigm, and as a result, they were usually completely out of touch with the needs of the working class, which were at this point constantly in flux, and typically ended up causing more problems than they actually solved. And, huh. I mean, obviously, obviously um, there's some leeway here because, again, these are, these are unparalleled times and they're trying to figure stuff out, but remember, this elite class is not yet starving. Um, they're not feeling the squeeze, so they're pretty much not really thinking through these huge, like, laws that they're passing um i don't know were you gonna say something no no just about okay. you know making things uh making things worse when you it's almost like funny the government trying to get involved in something making it worse unprecedented yeah no matter who we vote for the government always seems to get in anyway so it became criminal <laughs> to refuse <laughs> vote with your crossbow <laughs> exactly <laughs> So anyway, it became criminal to refuse any work at all, and fixed, um, and all the wages were fixed to the same level so that the working class stiffs couldn't demand higher pay, even though there was a higher demand and less labor, so they were working more and getting paid less, basically. Nevertheless, inflation began to decrease as everything stabilized and everyone got used to this new normal. Peasants found ways around and frequently broke these restrictive work laws, and they were rarely caught because trying to enforce complicated restrictions on 95% of the population is basically impossible. And the peasants got so good at finding ways to make more money, um, like outside the system, on the black market, you know, doing odd jobs and stuff, that their buying power went through the roof. In fact, they were making and spending so much money, they were actually consuming expensive goods like spices and fine imported foods. Which caused the elites to panic because now their fancy lifestyles had to compete with their own peasantry. Of course, we couldn't have that. Um, couldn't have these lowly peasants consuming all the spicy foods and depriving the poor elite of their their corner on cool stuff. 
So Parliament passed a bunch of laws basically making it illegal for peasants to buy anything that wasn't McDonald's tier. Of course, these laws were also unenforceable, but it was still uh, hugely unpopular and furthered the divide between the working class and the elites. Your take. <laughs> I was going to say, whatever they were eating was probably healthier than McDonald's. Like, I'm pretty That's sure true. there's probably nothing you could eat in the 14th century that would have the same effect on your digestive system as, you know, a McChicken. Yeah. But, I mean, this is, of ah, course, yes. coming from gonna, a guy. <laughs> gonna order off the, the shilling menu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so, yes, laws are unpopular. And while all this chaos is going on in England, the English throne itself was engaged in what was called, like I said, the Hundred Years' War. Now, I'm not gonna dig too much into that because it's, it's, it's a hundred years' war. I mean, it wasn't actually a hundred years, was it? But they called it that because it was really frickin' long. Um... I think, unless there's some unofficial or official reason I don't know about. But either way, it was long enough that the expenses of this conflict were substantial, and uh, the payoffs were basically non-existent. The English were engaged in a drawn-out remote war with France, leading, uh, landing their men on continental Europe, fighting with the French, taking and losing ground at about the same rate, and basically going nowhere for 40 years. Um, the war was costly for both sides, but France had the one distinct advantage, I guess you could say, in the war um, for their lands, namely being that they actually lived on a continent and not a sad, rainy island. <laughs> yeah, because um, it's all because, you, remember, where did the English uh, royalty come from? Oh, fill me in. Normandy, you know, they came from France, right. and so, oh, yeah, yeah. so they still owned where they'd come from, and for, you know, marriage and dynastic stuff, they owned bits and pieces of different, you know, different um, proper areas in France were part of... So, so it's not that they were sort of just, you know, landing Higgins boats on the shore, it's that they <laughs> were trying to keep their old possessions in France, and right. the whole island they'd taken over. That's, so, like, yes. they did have some level of sort of home base on in parts of France. Well, thank you for filling us in on that. Um, this is why I didn't cover the Hundred Years' War. Because I think in terms of modern nations and not uh, the flux of, uh, uh, I don't know what you would even call that. Okay. So, anyway, <clears throat> they are on the defense. That's kind of the point. Yeah, um, that, that, and, that is fair. And so the French just basically had to kind of sit there. And the English, you know, had to defend their lands or whatever, or the, you know, the royalty or whatever. The point is, um, the English were trying to get possession of some kind of royal baguette. I don't know. Anyway, so, <laughs> in 1377, over 40 years after this war had begun, Edward III of England died. At this point in the war, the French had started sort of landing, like, sort of coming back over to England, and they're like, oh, okay, so now we're going to come and sack your towns. And England was really starting to feel the squeeze at last and was starting to crack financially under all this pressure. So when Edward III died, he passed his throne onto his grandson, Richard II, who was 10. And there was a very specific reason um, for, well, who actually became, who actually came to power following his death. And it wasn't Richard II because he was just 10. So... The child doesn't become king, and he doesn't just start distributing Legos and dad's used up smartphones to the people, um, because, again, he's 10. So his elders in the government took the lead. In this case, in this case, uh, Richard's uncles and high court officials took the reins. 
And one particular man among them was the wealthy Duke of Lancaster. Lancaster? Lancaster? I don't know how to pronounce these words. Is it Lancaster? I think it's Lancaster. Lancaster. All right. Duke of Lancaster. John of Gaunt, who was a god fellow indeed. Have you ever heard of this man? I've heard of him. Um, Very much sounds like a, a made-up name. Like, it just yeah. sounds evil. It sounds like a Dark Souls boss. Yeah. Lord John, John of Gaunt. Gaunt. Mm-hmm. Well... John of Gaunt probably deserves his own episode because he was such a colossal disaster in so many ways. It's hard to fully document. I barely scratched the surface. Like I said, he needs his own episode, but his position in this story is pretty clear. Because the only reason he was the man of the hour at this time was his wallet and his extensive holds on English land. And as we'll see later on down the line, his business connections. His friend. <laughs> Yes. Interesting. So, yes. So this really rich guy basically takes over the Regency. So Gaunt and his fellow nobles were aware of the economic situation facing England at this time. With the plague, the war, and other considerations, they were faced with some hard decisions. And we know wealthy people frequently make decisions that don't benefit themselves and always benefit the people. So we have some good things to look forward to here. Um, but... The one thing they did realize that was pretty obvious was that they're, they were just in too much war right now. There was just, there were too many problems economically to continue to hold some of these lands or, you know, basically keep that whole machine going. And even if they were to declare some kind of truce, um, the French kind of had the advantage because they knew that the English were really, really, really suffering. Um, or at least the, um, the leadership there was feeling the financial squeeze. But, in that, so in that case, the uh, Gaunt and his fellows decided that the war must go on and impose new taxes ah, on yes, the Ah, yes, I, I like that logic. We can't really afford the war, therefore we <laughs> need to continue the war. Right. Well, you know, these people probably have a, you know, have a future in, like, the Bush administration. For real, though. <laughs> um... And then once we get yeah. to the Obama administration, we can start trebuchet-striking civilians. Yes, that's <laughs> very true. <laughs> Drone trebuchets from the sky, carried by swallows. African swallows. I don't know. Okay. So, the war has to continue. There's no way they gotta, they're going to stop that and lose what they got, right? They've got to hold on to those lands, and they've got to, you know, keep it up. So, what do they do? They imposed new taxes on the good people of England. Unfortunately, their taxing model was so outdated that they literally tax people at the same rate per household as they did pre-Black Death. Or, I had a joke in here about a virus I won't mention, but I won't, because I don't want to get banned. Anyway, this seems incredibly dumb, but what were they going to do? Just build a new tax model in the midst of all this pandemonium? That would be work! So they just went with what worked before, and things went just about as badly as they could go. Not only could people not pay up, a lot of people who were on the tax collector's list were simply not there anymore. Like I said earlier, people were moving around. They'd either died, moved, been abducted by space aliens, or met with some other such terrible fate. And this old tax model either taxed people too much or couldn't be enforced, which is a... It's a theme we're running into. <laughs> they say, from on high, we will tax you this much. And people were like, can't pay it, won't pay it. Uh... I'll just disappear now and take on a new name. Um, Excellent. The, I, can't, the king can't tax you if you're in the mountains of Idaho off the grid. That's right. Um, 
Either way, it wasn't working out so well for, for the royalty and all those in leadership in London, so Parliament came up with a plan. Parliament basically hired Ted Cruz to design a tax form you could fit on a postcard. They introduced a, what was called a poll tax, which was kind of like a basic flat tax. Um, well, it was, yeah, it was a, literally a fixed tax for anybody at the age of accountability, which back then was 14. If you were married, you were taxed less because you were making more tax cattle for later on. Look at the edge on me. I said tax cattle on the podcast. Well, it didn't work. In fact, when the war got worse, the crown came back to parliament to request further taxation. This time, there were seven levels of taxation based on England's class structure. So, one might think we're improving there. The wealthy would be taxed more, and the poor would be taxed less. Trouble is, whenever further complexity is introduced into a tax plan, it becomes easier for clever people to evade, particularly rich people who know the law and know the people who are imposing the taxes, and slash are the people who are imposing the taxes. So basically everyone in England was evading taxes at this point, <laughs> because it was the only way to survive. So the second tax proved to be even more ineffective than the first. So things are just going from bad to worse. In the November of 18, uh, 18, <laughs> 1380, Parliament came up with a brilliant new plan. With complete default hanging over the crown's increasingly less jeweled head and the death and death by France and other enemies becoming more and more likely, Parliament decided to try something new and pass a third poll tax. This is excellent. I know, right? It's the same. It's just, it's working. <laughs> At this time, the Lord Chancellor Archbishop Simon Sudbury <laughs> estimated that the crown would require £160,000 to pay off its debt. This was an insane amount of money. Um, for perspective, the second rapacious poll tax raised only £18,600. So that's significantly less than the £160,000 they're looking for. But the third poll tax was passed nonetheless, and Parliament decided to go back to this flat rate model. 12 pence would be required of each person over 15, and this time there would be no deduction for married couples. Parliament estimated that this new flat tax, I shit you not, would bring in 66,666 pounds. That's not a joke. Anglo-Satanic space wizardry confirmed. I knew it. So why did they raise it to 15 from 14, though? Like, I don't know. Was the 14-year-old really... lobby really powerful at this point or something? <laughs> I don't know. I just... Probably the 14-year-olds didn't have any money at all. And the 15-year-olds had about 12 pence, and so they taxed them for everything they were worth. So anyway, <clears throat> now that we know uh, magic is afoot because they use the sixes in that number, um, we uh, we know that it's, it's actually going to work this time, right? So... The thing is, nobody wanted to pay it, and uh, there was, there was like last time, they were going to run into the problem of enforcement, but they had planned for that this time. They were like, all right, we're going to introduce this, and we're going to make sure nobody can evade it. So Parliament basically hired mercenaries to go from town to town, interrogate people, and find out just who the hell was avoiding these taxes. Even wow. though ev did they get everybody like a, was. Did they get, like, a three-letter acronym or something? Um, they should have... <laughs> The ERS, the English Revenue Service. I don't know. All right, so, <clears throat> meanwhile, London... Did they kill people's dogs? Frequently. <laughs> if the people could afford to have dogs. So, meanwhile, yeah, London was experiencing some difficulties in the political sphere, as you might imagine. 
elites were uh, divided about what to do about this tax problem. And, of course, there were religious divisions as well. Because, I don't know if you know, there was constant religious reformation going on in England, and this was another facet of this. I didn't dig into a whole lot because I just don't have time for it. And I wanted to get the episode out. Um, but anyway, so, John of Gaunt, for example, supported John Wycliffe, uh, who was widely believed to be a straight-up heretic in England at the time. Uh, but a lot of elites liked the idea, liked the idea of reforming the church. What liked? Like. They liked the idea of reforming the church, mostly for their own gain. This is, of course, a long, long-standing tradition in the Anglosphere, as I'm sure you are aware. Um, just making things weirder. <laughs> so, there were some local elites in the towns and villages who were appointed to become tax collectors and frequently seized property from those who could not pay the taxes. This was somewhat of a failure because even some village leaders didn't want to participate in this enforcement. Likely because the serfs were starting to get really mad and they had families to feed. Those leaders who did not participate would sometimes find themselves at the end of a pitchfork or surrounded by an angry mob. Um, frequently, property that was legally taken because of an individual's failure to pay a debt would simply be illegally reclaimed. Just by force, the peasant would just show back up and be like, you can try, but you'll have to kill me. Because I'm going to die anyway if I can't tend to this land. But there was little uh, the enforcers of these laws could actually do to combat it when an entire village was against them. You see, they may have had the badge, but it really, when it really came down to it, it was sometimes one man and an increasingly ineffective badge versus the entire hungry, angry, and desperate population of his own hometown. <clears throat> but is... enough about what 2024 is going to be like. <laughs> I was writing this and I'm like, am I just writing the news down? <laughs> I'm a time traveler, just like Bill Gates. We're best friends. Anyway, so factions began to form as well, as you might imagine. When there's civil unrest, you get factions. Some villages declared themselves independent from the tyranny going on in London and started their own little traditional communities. Um, there was also uh, a... Eh, I wouldn't call it a significant migrant problem. Not in the way we typically think about it, except for that everybody was moving all the time. Just displace, 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 can't pay it, can't pay it, can't pay it, gotta move on. Um, and this was all over the rural areas, but this was also happening in London as well. Um, Flemish communities, for example, tended to be seen with suspicion because they were not English. Uh, and there's a whole lot more to that that we'll get to later on. I mean, in fairness, um, I also view the Flemish with suspicion. As you should. <laughs> these tensions would only grow during these times of difficulty. However, tensions between different peoples uh, be in the country began to subside after a while. For now. By 1370, things had been so bad for so long, the English peasants had kind of stopped blaming other Flemish peasants. And it started blaming their common enemy. London. In fact, things were so bad that the elites in London had some serious worries that if the French managed to set up a solid position in England, the French could easily persuade the English peasantry to join their side and smash the city to smithereens. That's how poorly this was managed. It's just like, after decades of this, they're like, wow, we're doing such a bad job, they might side with our enemies. Huh. Hmm. Hmm. Huh. Wonder if Can't anyone imagine. in the federal government feels that way. No, I highly doubt that. Well, anyway, so this this spawns something really interesting. Um, and I'm not even going to have to draw the connection here, I don't think. Until, well, I, I think I do in the not script, but... 
Something started in 1377 amidst all this chaos, displacement, and hopelessness called the Great Rumor of 1377. Have you ever heard of this? I don't think so. Okay, that's all right. It's weird. It's really, really weird. Um, the lower classes, desperate for reprieve from these conditions, found themselves amidst found themselves amidst a rumor that there was a higher law than those made by the elites in London. There was a rumor that William the Conqueror, when he had consolidated power in England, had written down a special set of laws specifically to govern the elites, and that the elites of 1377 were in violation of these secret laws. The law was known as the Libre de Wintonia, uh, the Book of Winchester, the Judgment Book, or the Doomsday Book. Doomsday. Which is just Doomsday, but spelled differently. So and this I is assume, I, I'm well, really curious where this is going, because I happen to know what that is, and I happen to know that that's not what that is. Well, I mean, tell me more, <laughs> because before I start making a fool of myself, you should tell us what you know. Well, I haven't, I haven't read ahead, I just know that was basically a pretty crude version of a census. Yes, exactly. Which is not what it is apparently believed no. to be in this rumor. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's it's not. <laughs> this is where we're getting into the Anglo-Saxon space wizardry and <sighs> the imaginations. The imaginations of a very, very sad group of people. So the Doomsday Book, the Doomsday Book, is actually a real thing. In fact, it's considered one of the most important primary sources, sources, sorceresses available to us from that era. It is a survey register of the king's holdings in England uh, and has a little bit of legal bullshit tied to it. Um, it's mostly just a list of who's owed what at the time and who was paying and who wasn't. Does that sound about right? Yeah, and it was, you know, how many uh, how many villages are there in this mm -hmm. shire and, you know, how, how much of the land is farmable. It's really boring stuff, honestly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Have you read this book? No, not the actual book, but no, I've read about this book okay, mostly okay. because it had a cool name yeah and, right and i found out it wasn't actually anything very interesting no but the english the great rumor about this book is fascinating so this book had two volumes there was the little doomsday and the great doomsday weirdly enough little doomsday was more detailed than great doomsday i should say is because it's still around even though it was a physically smaller book and within these volumes is a wealth of data about, again, who held what in England following the Norman Conquest. And there's also some metadata to be gathered about who actually owned things in England. Well, according to the Great Rumor, and according to the Doomsday Book, allegedly, um, no one but the king owned anything at all. Not the elites in London, not the church, nothing. The king technically owned everything. Okay, this was the rumor. This was the little factoid that got a massive rumor going. So, when the desperate peasants began to hear about this, particularly from religious reformers, etc., they're like, Oh yes, the Book of Doomsday, it's been set down by the true king of England. So, they thought to themselves, Huh, so that elite class that's just pushing us around doesn't actually legally own any bit of England at all? What if we appealed to the true king and made him see reason? He could fix this by way of the Doomsday. So, this is the thing about the Great Rumor. It sounds nice, right? I don't know if it reminds you of anything. 
I'm going to take it. It doesn't. <laughs> Are you there? Oh, sorry. I didn't even realize that I accidentally muted my mic. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I was responding. But, uh, <laughs> no, can I, just, can I just add something in here first, which is that sure. um, just for the, the benefit of our listeners, it it's easy from our perspective to imagine sort of the king and the elite as being roughly synonymous. But yeah. for most of European history, especially in England, that was not true. Usually you sort of had three, the three biggest sort of divisions in terms of sides, big sides were the non-elites. And we're not going to even include the church because they sort of overlapped the non-elite elite thing. But the elites, the non-elites and the king, oftentimes the king was not on the same side as the elites. And a lot of times in various European countries, the peasantry liked the king didn't like the elites and so the king would gain political power from you know sort of every every one of these three would sort of be playing the other two off against each other and whatnot so from our perspective it sounds weird this idea of oh the elites are oppressing us we should have you know we have to sort of go back to this royal thing but when you actually understand that a lot of times the king and the elites were pushing against each other it makes a certain amount of sense that when the elites seem to really be you know, stepping on you that maybe you could get then the king to then push back against the elites. And it's just sort of these three different forces. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad, man, I'm glad you, you could just deliver that little speech right off the top of your head. We do get into that a little bit, but it was the first time I'd ever heard of it because I don't typically go into like this era. I like the 20th century because I'm boring and it's probably all made up. Um, <laughs> you just like the 20th century because that's when people, you know, went to Antarctica. Yeah, that's true. It's <laughs> when the aliens showed up. Um, but <laughs> I thought they yeah. showed up in like the third millennium BC. I've watched Ancient Aliens. I, you know, what's that? What's that? Uh, was it the? What's that illuminated manuscript or broadsheet or whatever that has supposedly has the space aliens on it? Oh, there are so many. When you watch Ancient Aliens, it's like anything that's ever been drawn or carved, they will find a way in an infographic to show you why it depicts aliens. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, (laughs) this is neither here nor there. Um, So the point is, there's this big hope that this tyrannical elite could be completely put down by the king if he was made to see the plight of the of the peasants. And I hope I'm representing this right. This is how I interpreted it when I was reading it. Because basically, I this is not a new thing. Lots of people are like, you know, they talk about like English common law and there's that whole sovereign citizen thing um, where people are like, oh, there's a deeper law than, than the laws of this federal government and I, all I have to do is know it and I can beat the courts. It's, a very, it's very interesting to see that pop up now and then. Um, and I think it's seeing a resurgence right now because people are kind of fed up and they're looking for something to that they can do about it besides actually, you know, something direct. Besides voting with your crossbow. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did uh, appeal to the king, Richard II, even though he was young. And, of course, he had been recently crowned. And uh, um, there was basically the rumor was that he was the only one who had possession of all the land in England. John of Gaunt, this elite, you know like money lending type person um, who didn't have any power in England. And it's because the doomsday book said so. And like, there's just this nice little rumor going on. Um, And they were basically like, if we go to the King and we say, redistribute the wealth, he can take all of John of Gaunt's money and give it to us to keep us from starving to death. Um, 
Yeah, so here's the thing. He didn't, and there's speculation that the wealthy elites bribed or otherwise coerced the king to not give way to these desperate peasants. And whether or not that's true, this conspiracy theory nearly um, got John of Gaunt lynched in the streets of London. So people were like, oh yeah, like, we'll just, th this is literally how it went. They were like, oh, we have sworn our fealty to the king. That means we can kill his enemies. John of Gaunt is controlling everything and against the will of the king, so we can kill him, right? John of Gaunt almost got hanged by a bunch of angry peasants at one point. But it wasn't working because this doomsday theory was just that. It was just the theory. And, you know, it wasn't voting with your crossbow. So things just went from bad to worse because now that this conspiracy theory fell apart about the doomsday book, people realized that voting with your crossbow was kind of going to have to be the way it was. So in 1380, riots broke out in some of the larger western towns and would continue to blow up into the next year. Uh, some mayors were displaced, some things got burned down, but ultimately the riots ended up just being a tension release. And then a huge storm blew in um, as well sometime in the May of 1381, like massive. Oh, so like an um, actual literal storm. Like a literal storm okay. was coming. <laughs> okay, okay, I got you. So like actual weather. I'm telling, uh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but this has this nothing can stop what's coming QAnon vibe. Um, which, of course, has the already exasperated peasants posting dumb memes on peasant Facebook back then. Um, but yeah, so there was literally a huge storm that made everyone go, It's divine! You know, but we can get out of this with the doomsday law, and the storm is is showing us that God's on our side. Like, hysteria. These people were completely desperate, right? Um, I, so I didn't want to make that connection, but that's what it feels like. People were completely desperate. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. So either way, after nearly a century of downturn, plague, war, and tyranny... There was at last enough of a literal spark in the air for someone to actually do something. And it began with John Brampton, who was a member of Parliament, known for hobnobbing with royalty. And John Brampton was mad. On the 1st of June, eight, uh, 1831, sorry. <laughs> he called oh. in... Le yeah, I know. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I, I, I respect the sort of, you know overall survey, but I think that's a little bit of a chronological jump. The people trusted the plan for 400 years. <laughs> so anyway, um, he called in, this John Brampton uh, called in the leadership from all the villages under his control to explain just, the hell, just where the hell his tax money was. Three villages, uh, not all of his villages, but three of them had missed payments in the merry month of May, the villages of Corringham, Fobbing, and Stanford Le Hope. I refuse to believe that British names are real. They're not. Um, but anyway, Coringham Fobbing and Stanford Le Hope weren't paying up and Brampton wasn't having it. So he demanded that the peasants come on down to his office in Brentwood and make their case. That just so sounds they did. like a subdivision. Doesn't it? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So they... Estates at Brentwood. <laughs> the view at Brentwood. <laughs> <laughs> so they did. They, the peasants did come down. and it, Well, it's not really clear whether they went to Brentwood or he ended up going down to them. Either way, when they met each other, the peasants had bows and stout walking sticks. Um, and the accounts differ was whether or not they went down there. But either way, the result was the same. Thomas Baker, a representative of the village of Fobbing, either told Brampton that his people had already paid their taxes and would not be double-charged, 
or that they were done paying uh, this man altogether because he wasn't helping in any way. He was just sucking up their money and their goods and their land and their food and everything. So Brampton was like, I will not have this, this impertinence. And he attempts to start up a court and try these people on the spot for failing to pay these taxes. But what happened? He was attacked and forced to break up the court. Well, one might ask, well, you know, obviously the people attacked him because they were done with the taxes. But there was another element to this that ended up being the camel, the straw, the camel that broke the straw's back. <laughs> the straw <laughs> that broke the camel's back. One of the tax collectors that was there with Brampton was busy sexually assaulting a child in the village while this guy was trying to put these people on trial for not paying their taxes. As is the want of the tax collecting elite. So the father of this girl who this happened to saw it happen and straight up killed the pedophile on the spot. This man was none other than our very own Watt Tyler. Maybe. Allegedly. We really don't know. But this is the this is the first point at which we actually see his name. This is the story that allegedly was going around. He killed the tax collector who was molesting his daughter. Even if it, it might have happened, it might not have, we really don't know because there was another dude named Tyler mixed up in this. Either way, Watt Tyler became an, it became an instant focal point during this time, and it's the first time he appears in the peasant milieu. It was the story that was going around. So Watt Tyler became the head, this, this just, he was a Tyler, right? So I think that means he was doing like shingles or something. Um, he became head of the rebellion pretty organically at this point and very quickly became a folk hero. Um, and his character fluctuates throughout this story, but this is where he first appears on the scene. Meanwhile, Brampton fled to London while his other tax collectors, uh, stuck around and were killed by, uh, townspeople who had had enough. And, uh, the other townspeople who had agreed to sit on the jury that they were trying to get together were also killed. Gotta do so, what you gotta do. I was gonna say, like, we're, we're there. <laughs> um, this is voting with your crossbow. Um, so Brampton then sent some stooge named Robert Belknap, uh, Chief Justice of Common Pleas, to arrest the peasants in these villages. Belknap was also attacked and could do nothing to stop the rage that was building in Essex in particular. And now that the first shots had officially been fired, things heated up very, very, very quickly. Between all of these vill villages, the ones uh, managed by Brampton and others that were just nearby who heard, you know, the molestation story, people were like, this has got to stop, right? It's been decades of this um, following the pandemic that killed half of Europe. I mean, the taxes are through the roof. The king's, I mean, just the conspiracy theory about the Domesday Book has fallen through. It's, it's time for full-on revolt. So they form a plan. And the plan is basically to muster an army, march to London, and hang the bastards. <laughs> so, there's that. Are you tracking with me? Oh, I'm tracking. I'm tracking. Okay. Starting to heat up. Um, so, one rebel leader, um, that I couldn't find out who because I, I didn't really want to dig through old English records that much. Um, one rebel leader ended up heading to Suffolk uh, to gather, gather more forces, but when he arrived... He found that word had already spread, and the peasants there had already milled out their lower 80s and acquired night vision and plates rated for 50 cal. So he's got he gets there and people are already ready to, you know, vote by crossbow. <laughs> um, 
And in County Kent, Sir, Sir Simon de Burley, also heavily associated with the royal family, was trying to capture an escaped serf named Robert Belling. Belling was living in a village called Gravesend, and he had been there for a while, and he was discovered and, um... Let's see. He was one of those immigrants who was hiding out in another village. So they found him, and they are like, hey, you've got to go back and become a serf again. And he was like, hey, I can pay for it now. Um, so he tried to purchase his own freedom, but the bailiffs were like, no, you have to go back to work. And he said, no. So they arrested him and took him to Rochester Castle and put him in prison. Well, shortly after this, a raging mob of armed peasants hearing this story, led by Watt Tyler, arrived at the castle and demanded that Belling be set free. The constable in charge surrendered Belling to the rebels instead of fighting them, at which point Watt started a live stream with the crowd behind him and announced that it was finally time to march on London and burn the whole thing down. <sighs> it's interesting, you'll see there's a, there's a marked lack of resistance on the part of sort of the lower... Uh, guys on the totem pole within the government. Um, like, I was kind of stunned at this. So we'll see that come up again. So on the 10th of June, Watt Tyler and his little army, which was only growing, arrived at Canterbury and marched in. Um, no, the gates weren't even shut. And the goal was to depose the archbishop, who was not there. <laughs> because he had probably received word that this was on its way. Um, but the rest of the monks were there. And many of these monks swore their support of the peasants, and some of them were compelled to by force. We don't know how many was on either side, but I would think probably a lot of them were compelled to swear their fealty to this army of peasants. But I couldn't say. That's just pure speculation. I don't know if you had a take on that. Nah, not, not really. I don't have any... Okay. I don't have any information. I didn't research this, so... This is true. Neither did I, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> just making it up. Anyway, so the rebels went into the streets of Canterbury and set fire to anything tied to the Royal Council, even things tacitly um, tied to the elites, um, including various properties, businesses, um, etc. It wasn't random destruction. This was targeted annihilation. Um, the rebels hunted down tax collectors in Canterbury, friends of the London elites, and other failed symbols of leadership, dragged them out into the streets, and summarily executed them. The peasants also went to the city jail and freed everyone, which, at this point, let's be honest, was probably mostly other peasants who couldn't pay their taxes. England has a history of debtor's prison, which is ungodly, to say the least. Um, so with this victory in the bag, Watt Tyler stood up in front of his army uh, of a few thousand angry peasants at this point and said, And tomorrow, London! Which, he didn't actually say that, but that's basically what happened. Everyone was really excited about this, <laughs> as you might imagine. Literally the last time in history anyone was excited about going to London. Right. <laughs> so the rebels spent the night in Canterbury, probably enjoying themselves immensely and, you know, killing other elite people. In Canterbury, they were able to acquire better armaments and even some armor. Um, they were still not that well supplied, uh, but it was somewhat of an upgrade. Especially since most of them were carrying, like, crappy hunting bows and pitchforks. Yeah, I mean, it's a misconception which movies have created just how plentiful good weapons and armor were. Like, hmm. they really weren't. Like, if you look, some things, like spears, spears are easy, axes, 
pretty easy. But like things like swords and real armor are incredibly expensive. And so there's just not that much of it. Like, you know, there, there are municipal records from cities in Europe that list how many things are in the like city armory. And these are like large cities and they'll have, you know, thousands of spears and stuff, but they'll have like 50 swords. Really? Like, oh yeah, no, like in terms of the, um, buying power, a good quality, so a real sword, that is something that is forged and tempered, not like a falchion, which is just a beefed up machete. A good sword would be about the same investment buying as a high-end car. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, like, these are things, you know, the, and armor even more, like, a a set of plate armor, of good plate armor would be about the equivalent of being to own, being able to own a small jet. That's <laughs> really? the so, yeah, so like that's the amount of the you know the portion of the population who's able to own the really good weapons and armor. Like these things are ridiculously expensive. Mm. So most most many weapons even in not just rebellions but in actual military use were very close to repurposed farm implements, stuff that was could actually be made en masse. Because you can't make, you know, thousands upon thousands of things that cost, you know, the price of a Ferrari. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, like, so you have to keep in mind that there's actually, in terms of the armor and weapons of lower-level government forces, aren't that different from arms and armor of, you know, local irregular forces. Right, right. Well, that's good to know. <clears throat> I will draw no parallels. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they did get some, some armor, some weapons, dedicated weapons that weren't farming implements. Uh, so they're, you know, feeling pretty good about that. And no doubt, actually not, there's no doubt. I mean, well, Watt Tyler eventually had an actual sword at one point, as far as I know. Um, so anyway, word got around a lot more slowly in these days, but it could still travel fairly quickly, especially when an event of this scale is on the table. Many elites, including the king's own mother, was fleeing to London to barricade herself into in uh, the castle with her son. Uh, and the king himself was not in London yet. He was out at Windsor Castle. He heard about the takeover of Canterbury that same night. And the rumor that the peasants were coming for London proper next. So he's like, I got to get out of here. So the king jumps into a boat, heads down the Thames. Is that how you pronounce it? I never <laughs> yes, know. Yes, yes. The, the Thames. Thames. <laughs> I don't Straight. know. You've, you've actually been to the the UK. I, I, I never. You haven't? Well, I've been to. We'll put it this way. I've been to occupied Northern Ireland. That's the only oh, part okay. of the UK I've been to. <laughs> So he heads down the Thames straight into London and hides out in the Tower of London with his noble friends and the Lord High Treasurer, Robert Hales. Thomas Brinton, I'm sorry, Thomas Brinton, Bishop of Rochester, was delegated to lead negotiations with the rebels and was dispatched with a small team to take care of the problem before it got all the way to London. While the rebellion had not reached London proper, it had reached Blackheath, which is pretty damn close. And at Blackheath, it was settled among the rebels that they were not going to go after the king. They were going to go after pretty much everyone but the king. <laughs> and again, this this arose from the belief that we mentioned earlier about the Doomsday Book that the king was technically... Well, he was like, he was being, you know... Um, 
controlled by a puppet government of elite people with lots of money, which may or may not have been true. Actually, probably was completely true. But still, they're not going after the king. They're just going after everybody else. Yeah, no, and I'm um, even sort of, yeah, going back to, you know, the stuff we were talking, but if you think about it, it's pretty much any everyone else, if you kill them, whatever role, whatever legitimate role they played in government and society can be pretty easily replaced. Like, there's not going to be some massive fight over the legitimacy of, you know, the new Lord High Treasurer. Like, it may be a small thing, but it's not going to be, like, a national question. Who has the right to be the Lord High Treasurer? But the pe even the peasants know. When you kill the king, like, you create a situation where it's very hard to replace him. Like, there's going to be a lot of people who claim that they should get to be the king, but it's going to be a whole national crisis of a new king. So peasants are, in in history, peasants are very, very, very rarely want to take out a king. Everyone else, fine. They can be replaced pretty easily in right. terms of the aristocracy and the government, but very few people actually want to kill a king. That's good to know. There's so much going on here that, um, that I'm, I'm glad you know about. This is adding a lot of good perspective. Um, so yes, the serfs did see this king as a captive of his own high council, and they were no longer true to the crown. So when the Bishop of Rochester arrived at Blackheath to try and talk them all into going home, he discovers that these rebels uh, were very, very motivated to take London. Negotiations, needless to say, failed quickly, and the bishop left to tell the royal council that they were basically screwed. <laughs> um, and this caused some very nervous conversation to happen in the Tower of London. The king wasn't too worried, but he only had a handful of soldiers in the city, and by a handful I mean, like, at max a couple of hundred, which doesn't sound like that much in the face of thousands of peasants, but again, they probably had, you know, actual weapons and armor and that sort of thing. And of course he had his king's guard, which would have weapons and armor. Um, most of the actual, like, fighting forces were out fighting elsewhere, because remember the war, they were far away in these you know, needless in France. In France, yes. Um, and the royals then wondered if they could get the local lords to drum up their own peasant force to go against the rebels, but this was not a non-starter for a couple of obvious reasons. First of all, it's a peasants' revolt. To get peasants to fight back other peasants requires a lot of motivation, which is in short supply on the side of the royals. Yeah, I mean, you remember, you remember the scene in, in Braveheart where the... Uh, the Irish peasants who'd been uh, conscripted into the English army join with uh, with you know Mel Gibson. Oh yeah, you remember that? You remember I, that scene? The Irish, it. yeah, the Irish peasants who were conscripted and are put at the front line. But then when they meet with the Scottish, they just all stop and start talking and then join with the Scottish rebels. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Braveheart though. Oh how? And you call yourself a film guy? <laughs> Ah, uh, so yeah, um, they probably couldn't convince the peasants to kill other peasants, not at this point. Um, and, uh, also compelling peasants to march against an army that just took Canterbury and made an ass of two bishops in less than a week is not gonna be easy. Secondly, only the king was allowed to organize a local militia, legally speaking. This meant that a lot of the lords were worried that he'd get some kind of fine slapped on the already ailing fiefs by some person from London. It was all very complicated, and it was sort of like, it was one of those situations where it was like, they're coming, what can we do? Literally nothing that will work 100%. <laughs> There's no plan 
um, to deal with this kind of thing. Like, But anyway, so it was decided that there was only one option. The king himself must meet with the rebels. And remember, the king is 14 at this point in the story. So he gets back onto his boat and sails to the south side of the Thames. And with him are four ships filled with soldiers, presumably for intimidation as well as protection. But again, the peasants weren't going to target the king, so who knows. But when the king and his men arrived at the rebel encampment, if it was an encampment, it was more like a rabble on the shore, they attempted to carry out negotiations from the water? Um, <laughs> Standing on the boat, yelling across. <laughs> I say, I say. What do you want? <laughs> what can this king do for you? They're like, what? So, negotiations yeah, they're, they're failed. Like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, Good one. I'm surprised you didn't write that into the not script. Uh, I sh I should have, but I I left that one for you. <laughs> so anyway, the poor king refused to go to the shore, probably because he was afraid of putting himself in that kind of at that kind of risk. So can't really blame him there, I guess. Um, but they wouldn't talk to him unless he was on equal ground. So nothing really came of this. So this proved to be the last attempt at a at trying to deal with this thing peacefully. So that afternoon, the rebels crossed London Bridge and walked right into the big city with no defense being offered. And we don't know why exactly historians speculate. Um, it has been postulated by some, postulated, proposed by some, that those in charge of London's defense uh, were sympathetic, or that the garrison was simply too weak. Not only were the main gates left open, but pretty much all of the other defensive gates were left ajar. So do we have any idea how many peasants we're talking about at this point? We're in the area I'm of 2,000 right now. Oh, okay, so that's not actually that many. <laughs> really, it's not. But when they get to London, they find some reinforcements. Um, and these rebels, led by Watt, Tyler... Uh, had with them what's known as a day of the rope list. Like, a, they had a literal list, probably not written down, but they had a list. Um, and this list included John of Gaunt, Archbishop Sudbury, John Brampton, and Robert Belknap. And also pretty much anyone at all associated with the Royal Council or Parliament. And as this list of targets became better known to Londoners who were kind of just watching from their homes, many were like, oh, I hate that guy. I'll march with you. <laughs> uh, so people just start joining up. Uh, I don't exactly know how many, but it was a rabble, so I'm sure nobody could really keep count. Um, but the rebels did uh, get fresh reinforcements from another place, their first stop in London, the Marshalsea Prison. This they tore down freeing many hopelessly indebted saps and probably also lots of regular criminals too, who were also very much ready to burn down the homes of their captors. Other smaller prisons and jails were also attacked and the prisoners were freed there. Nobody was doing anything because the mob was just doing its thing. So meanwhile, other groups of rebels sacked the headquarters of the Knights Hospitaller, um, which at this time was headed by Lord High Treasurer Robert Hales. This included the Priory, the Manor, and basically all the offices on Fleet Street. Uh, the peasants took all the financial records out of these offices and burned them in the street. So take that, paper. Oh yeah, that's a that's a classic thing. Because um, if you think about it, 
you don't really have remote storage, so if you can destroy, you know, tax and debt records, there's kind of no way that they can prove you owe the money anymore. So that yeah. was a, there's a in Rome, ancient Rome. There's one. There was one. I can't remember. I'm I'm getting old. There's one temple in the Forum where all the public records of debts were kept. So if you needed to borrow a bunch of money. You made the transaction, who they whoever was loaning you with the money at this temple, and then there were records kept. And so one thing that um, once things started to get a little bit more shaky after the after the glory days um, of the first century was emperors who wanted to drum up a lot of popular support would order all the uh, the records to be destroyed so hmm. that then anyone who owed money no longer owed money anymore. Well, that's a, that would be a pretty popular move. As just... you can see, that's another sort of what we were talking about, about, you know, the three different sort of elites, monarch and non-elites, sort of not not having a set sort of uh, antagonism between them. And so emperors, just like kings later on, would a lot of times have to have recourse to the non-elites to bolster their power against the elites. Because sure, the elites didn't want the tax records burned since they were usually the ones owed money, but the people would be all on board with that. So if you're already in a bad position with the elites and you want to make sure you've got have the, the people have your back, it's a pretty good move to do something that endears you to the people and only pisses off people who already hate you. Nice. Yep, you're right. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, so th this is a theme. That's good to hear. <laughs> it's not just in this story. Also on Fleet Street, conveniently, was the massive Savoy Palace, um, owned by none other than John of Gaunt. This place was the single most lavish place in pretty much all of London at that time. It, it was basically just a big house full of cool stuff. Um... And it was, like, it was famous because it was, like, uselessly extravagant. We're talking big collections of ornamental stuff like tapestries, ornaments, and trinkets, and dishes, like, that nobody will ever use because they're too nice. Um, and it was, it was just a hoard house. A hoarding house. That sounded terrible. <laughs> I didn't mean it! A hoarding house. All right. <laughs> Well, the peasants didn't like that. Um, if the wealth wasn't going to be used to help the country or the people and was instead going to be hoarded by the smog-like John of Gaunt, it just wasn't going to be around no more. So the peasants torched the place. They threw the silver into the river, they smashed the gems into dust and blew them away on the wind. And according to one account or legend, one man tried to steal a silver goblet instead of disposing of it, and he was killed by the other rebels for missing the point. So... <laughs> I found that interesting. That reminded me of a Bible story. I don't remember the... Wasn't the guy take like a goblet from Jericho or something? I don't remember. And, and they killed I, him. I'm, I'm Catholic. I don't read the Bible. You know that's this. That's right. That's right. Um, this, so they also took all the financial records out of the Savoy and burned those in the street, too. <laughs> they really... the Yeah, that just goes to show how important these documents actually were to um, these people. So as I've stated before... Um, oh, yeah. I want to talk about a conspiracy theory that uh, isn't even a theory. Um, we've got to talk about the Flemish. <laughs> um, because throughout researching this revolt, I kept running into a recurring and very specific phrase, which was, the peasants killed Flemings. So Flemings killed here, Flemings killed there, Flemings killed everywhere. So I asked the obvious question, what the fuck is a Fleming? <laughs> Because I didn't know. I th I've heard the word Flemish, but I've never heard Fleming. Um, 
So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it turns out it's just like a Dutch-ish person from a cursed place that is literally named Zeeland. Right? Is that right? Is that the Flems or the Flemings? Did I lose you again? I think Flanders is the more normal name for it. I think Zeeland is one part of Flanders, isn't it? I know, but I couldn't resist because we have the joke on the show about Zeeland. Yeah, because Ish, Ish is a um, Engl- is an English uh, ne- is an English adjective ending. Um, comes from comes from the German, but the um, the way you would you know pluralize. And um, it in in Dutch would it be like Vlemingen, and mm. so it just Fleming Vlemingen. But sometimes they just use a um an adjective instead of a noun. Flemish people are people who meet the characteristics of Flems versus <laughs> Vlemingen are Flemish people. So it's basically two ways of saying the same thing. That's just hilarious that there's people known as Flems. Very good. Um. I don't know why. It's not even that funny, but it is kind of strange. There are people called Anglos, and they're strange, so... <laughs> true, true. And um, one reason that people might hate Flems and be killing a lot of them is because Flems were very, very mercantile. Yes, yes. Uh, they were huge into um, commerce. Yes. And when you're having, you know, debt crisis and financial crisis and everyone's poor and starving... People who are, you know, making a lot of money through commerce are going to be uh, not looked on kindly. Yeah, we're actually going to talk about that a little bit um, because that is exactly what happens. Um, So anyway, they're also foreigners. And as you know, foreigners don't also don't do well during revolts um, and especially foreigners who belong to the same group of people as the king's advisor, the warden of the mint, Richard Lyons. Who is a Flem, or a Fleming, or Flemish, whatever. So what does Richard Lyons, a Fleming, have to do with the other Flem Flams? Absolutely nothing, as far as I can tell, except for the fact that he was a Fleming. Um, and was also the top of a couple of pyramids, which... It, it was kind of hard to dig into, because, you know, it's not like today where you can, like... Where you have, like, really detailed records and stuff. Um... Richard Lyons was basically the shady money behind John of Gaunt. And he also, like Gaunt, owned a ton of land, including uh, he owned land in Essex, Kent, Suffolk, Surrey, Sussex, Middlesex, Hertfordshire, and a huge amount of property in London. So he was a foreigner who was wealthy and literally owned many of the people who were rioting. So... He's basically target numero uno, but also he doesn't do well for his Flemish brethren um, by being the head of the mint. But he's also a well-known fraud and was responsible for the deliberate confounding of the market in London multiple times. He ran frequent scams and creative financial interference plans to sort of edge people out. Uh, At one time, he had a complete monopoly on sweet wine in London and was also known for attempting to bribe the former King Edward with 1,000 pounds disguised as a barrel of fish. He actually went to jail for this, only to later be released by John of Gaunt after Edward died. Uh, Oh, and it was after this part that John of Gaunt went ahead and just made him the head of the mint and the advisor to the, you know, teenage king. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. 
Oh, but he was also named the Alderman of the City of London. Not London, the City of London. And was also the Sheriff of London. And again, best buds with John of Gaunt. And Flemish, did I mention that? Well, <laughs> it's worth noting that Flemings in London were sort of legendary for watching out for each other. Uh, because they were foreigners in a strange land, this is not an unusual ph phenomenon. Um, this is what happened in the early days of America when we imported people from all over Europe and put them together. You had mafias, street gangs, and all sorts of discrimination. Um, and you got people looking out for their own. Um, so one thing that gets looked over in this whole story, which just, again, kept popping up, was the number of Flemings that were specifically targeted and killed just for being Flemish in England. Here and there, buildings burned, people beaten, financial records torched, but also here and there you'll just find a story about, oh, you know, how, I don't know, 35 Flemings were beheaded and piled up in the streets. I found an entire paper about Flemings in the Peasants' Revolt, and the guy was just, like, trying to figure out why. Well, <laughs> it was because largely because of Richard Lyons, the Flemish head of the Mint and the advisor to the king. He was basically lining his pockets and running frauds um, and becoming extensively wealthy. Like, he was, he was described by one man as... The quote was, the man was a wallet. <laughs> like, wow. Not good. Not good. Definitely um, a very wealthy person. Um, so yes, one of the Flemings that got the axe during all of this was the big man Richard Lyons himself. So during all of this, he was still doing business in a part of London ironically known as Cheapside. And it was there that he somehow met with Watt Tyler... And we really don't know the details about what happened, but we do know that at some point, Watt Tyler found him and beheaded him like the Flemish fuck he was. That's pretty rough. I, I apologize to our Flemish audience. <laughs> um, and of course, there is the theory that Flemings were targeted because they were also running a competitive weaver's market, and the unrest uh, was a solid opportunity for competitors to destroy their rivals through massive violence. But who can know? But anyway, I, I couldn't get through this without mentioning the Flem the Flemings, um, because it was just it just kept popping up, and I'm like, why are why did they just kill 35 Flemings? That just makes no sense to me. But anyway, and they, they like to behead them too, which is kind of too bad, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, so the head of the mint just got beheaded by Watt Tyler. And hiding away in the tower, the royals were actually kind of stunned by how badly things were going. Um, the king was now fully aware that he was not the target of this rebellion and that it was really the people surrounding him that were drawing ire. So he put together his little detachment of bodyguards and went out to meet with the rebellion's leadership, leaving his council behind, probably because they'd just get attacked. So when the king arrived at the rebel lines, he was presented with the peasants' list of demands and list of heads that they wanted. Um, first, like I said, they wanted a whole bunch of people dead, and they presented their rope list to the king. They also wanted serfdom abolished, um, the destruction of the new system of law, and the restoration of what they were calling something like the Domesday Code. They were the code. They were still some of them under the impression of this great rumor, and they also wanted amnesty for every single rebel. So the king agreed. He said, "I'll I'll abolish serfdom. Uh, I'll give you amnesty for the riots because or the rebellion because it's bad." But he said, "I'm not going to just kill people on this list. Like that's too much to ask." So, that was that. That was one detachment of rebels. But when the good king came home, he found 400 more rebels storming into the Tower of London all around him. The guards, unsure of what to do, just looked on in dismay. 
Emboldened once more, the rebels began their hunt. They quickly found Archbishop Sudbury, Robert Hales, John of Gaunt's personal doctor William Appleton, and a royal sergeant named John Legg. These men were taken to Tower Hill and beheaded. They also captured John of Gaunt's son, and they were going to kill him too, but a royal guard somehow managed to convince them otherwise. Um, the tower itself was thoroughly looted, and the loot wasn't destroyed this time. Um, which, you know, I guess if you really wanted to loot, you should have taken stuff at Savoy, but I guess they had principles at Savoy, and now they don't have them since they're taking them from the Tower of London. So that evening... Mm, interesting. I, I don't know what to make of it. Um, so that evening, while many rebels turned for home satisfied, Watt Tyler and his men from Kent prowled the city and assassinated foreigners, lawyers, and anyone associated with John of Gaunt that they could find. The king and his entourage fled to Canterbury to regroup and nurse their wounds. And on June 15th, the remaining royal government set up an IRL Zoom meeting with Watt Tyler in Smithfield. The king and 200 men at arms faced off with thousands of rebels just outside of London. Richard called the rebels' appointed leader Watt out into the field to talk. So Watt, now with a horse, rides out and allegedly approached the king with what was said to be excessive familiarity. In other words, Watt seemed to really think he had done the king a favor by rooting out all these corrupt bastards. Um, and he promised that they would make great friends from now on. Now, the king was a little less thrilled. <laughs> he, he actually didn't like that this peasant was approaching him like, Hey, buddy, fist bump! Instead, Richard the king asked why the hell Watt was still there. Most of his conditions had been granted. What else did he want? Well, Watt Tyler was sort of offended by this. Um, <laughs> he was like, Wait, why, why wouldn't you want to be friends with me? I just sacked your city. <laughs> <laughs> and so he demands another charter. For what, we really don't know. But he's like, we, we, want, we want another... We have more conditions. And then he demanded a flagon of water, uh, which, you know, he, at this point he's just getting... <laughs> has lots of demands. So they gave it to him, and then he washed his mouth out in front of the king. At which point, one of the royal servants insulted him. It's not known exactly what was said, but basically it was like, How dare you wash your mouth before the king? And when that happened, Watt Tyler attacked the servant. Like, started heading toward him, reached for a weapon. That's when a man named William Woolworth, the mayor of London, stepped between them and attempted to arrest Tyler's approach. But Tyler drew a knife and stabbed at him. But Walworth's armor deflected the blade. Walworth then drew his short sword and slashed Tyler across the neck. And as Tyler turned to try to escape, he got stabbed again by another servant. Tyler made it on horseback about 30 yards before he tumbled off and into the field. Um, so that's kind of a pathetic sight. He got his water and then got slashed across the throat. <laughs> So he was taken to a poor hospital in the city by his fellow rebels, but Walworth was in pursuit and sent his men to fetch him and bring him back to Smithfield. Uh, Tyler was brought back to Smithfield and was beheaded in front of the rebels right there on the field. So it sounds like he kind of pushed his luck. He should have uh, just left once they'd had the, sort of their initial victory. Yeah, I mean, it, se it really feels like he started feeling cocky and he was asking too much. And also that he didn't really know what he wanted. Because, um, like, they got their freedom, they got the, the amnesty, they got the promise that serfdom would go away, and it eventually did. 
Um, but now I'm like, I want a flagon of water now. And, and, and now we're going to have a second charter. And like, it was like, he just, he just took advantage of the, you know, the king being disgraced basically, which feels not so noble anymore. Um, but anyway, so at the death of Watt Tyler, the rebellion's morale broke. Uh, many fled or were chased out of London by soldiers. Lots of them were executed. And the king ended up revoking every single concession he made for the rebels and had many of them hunted down and killed. However, the result of this conflict made the royals really take a long look at themselves. Um, at least they knew not to try a poll tax again. Unrest continued for decades, but this disaster showed everyone that England could not be simultaneously running long wars, fighting a plague, and watching unchecked corruption destroy the working class. Um, basically, the royalty, not the royalty, but the elites and, well, the higher-ups learned that, okay, when they start voting with the crossbows, it's, it's time to start listening. In the end, though, uh, long-term uh, results for at least a little while, the pe peasants' wages went up, the wars got put on hold, uh, and serfdom eventually died out. Or did it? We don't know. So yeah, that's what I have for uh, for Watt Tyler. What'd you wow. think of that story? That was great. Like, I knew the very, very basic outline of the Peasants' Revolt, so mm. it's nice to fill it out a little bit. Um, what are, do you, I don't know if you looked into this at all, but what are, what are the sources that are relied on for this? Um, are they contemporary? Oh. Are they the next generation writing about it? Most of it comes from a, who was the guy? I really should <laughs> write. Uh, most but, of it comes from a book called Wikipedia. I had to leave out some re revisionist <laughs> shit, because um, there's a lot of people who made up a bunch of stories about peasants doing things that sound nice for movies, but definitely didn't happen. Uh, You're telling me people would write history and lie? Uh, I Just make stuff up? Wow. They do it all the time. Um, let's see here. Where is this? Let's see... It was, um, the book was, uh, not on London and its environs. It was, oh, The Chronicles by, um, some French-sounded guy. Uh, I really should have written it down. This is why I don't write papers. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> Let me just see if I can find this. The Chronicles of England. Here it is. Yes, yes, yes. England, France, and Spain by... Bye, 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 bye. Hold on, I gotta go back to my item details. Let's see here. Ah, Frosois. Frosois, Frosois, Frosois. Jean Frosois. I don't know how to pronounce it. And uh, it was written by a contemporary. That's a contemporary, but it was cleaned up later in the 1700s and translated. No, I'm just wondering how, yeah, how much of the evidence is contemporary since that plays a big role in you know, how much you trust a narrative and how much reading between the lines you have to do. This is very true. Um, and again, you, you people, know me, I'm all about the sources. Well, I think it's important, especially when you're trying to cover this much ground. I just try to get the sense of it and then, you know, I can point people toward, it's just literally called Chronicles of England, France, Spain, and the adjoining countries, uh, published this, this published this ebook, a ebook. <laughs> <laughs> this version of the book, which is now an ebook, was published in 1857, um, but it was written in 13 between 1338 and 1410. So, anyway, there's that. I guess that's it's pretty close to contemporary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Interesting story, though, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I learned a lot. Well, I'm glad I can teach you something now and then. Even if it's not about language. Are you there? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know if you wanted to discuss it at all or just leave it to sit there. Um, well, let's see. Elites usually suck. That's definitely something we can we can garner from that. Mm-hmm. Nothing ever changes. <laughs> yeah, nothing ever changes. That, too. Um, the Flemings are not to be trusted. <laughs> I felt I felt a little bit for little Flemings when I was reading about. It. I was just like, oh, the Flemings, the Flems. <laughs> uh, with that, okay, you, you ready to head to the surface and wrap this I, wrap this thing up? I think I think so. Sweet, off we go. Hmm. Wait, wait. Interesting. Wait, what, what? I just discovered something. So the guy who wrote that was um from an area. Not technically part of Flanders, but the adjoining oh. little region. Oh, mm. no. Mm, very suspicious. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just, hmm. Mm. Interesting. Awesome. Yeah, Jean Foissant, or whatever his name was, yeah. It's from, uh, from the Low Countries, right next to Flanders. Hmm. Ned Flanders. The Simpsons had it all right. It's all connected. It's all connected. All right. All right. Man. Well, yeah. Let's uh, let's head up. Let's wrap this up. So, Aaron, if you had to choose someone to lead a peasants' revolt today, who would you choose, and what would be his theme song? Uh, I wrote this question, and I didn't think about it at all, but. The theme song would certainly be that that song they used in the Six Flags commercials forever. We like to party. In fact, I think I would have the old man from Six Flags lead the Peasants' Revolt. This is with completely that, outside that, my frame of reference. Uh, you've never seen the old man from Six Flags? Uh, I, I'm ashamed to admit I have not. Oh, you'll have to look it up later. Trust me, it's the right choice. It's basically the presidential election. I'm not going there. All right. <laughs> and uh, if you had to lead a peasant's revolt, who would you choose? What would be his theme song? Hmm. I don't know. Probably Kanye. Um, Again? <laughs> probably Kanye. Again, it's, it's amazing. Kanye is, like, 10% of what he says is in actually incredibly incisive and deep, and the other 90% makes no sense at all. <laughs> Well, 10% is, that's a better battering, batting average than most of our politicians. <laughs> true, true. And then theme song, theme song. Um, hmm. Hmm. That's a tough one. Mm. Um, I don't know, probably uh, Dragostiadente, also known as Numa Numa. Oh, what is it with you and that song? <laughs> I've had that song stuck in my head for longer than I can remember. It's just constantly there in a tab. Nice. Just, you can't find a way to mute that tab, can you? Nope, nope. I'm the Romanians, sorry. I don't know what their deal is, but they've got it. They, they, they've got something. And I think it's, I think it's mostly just Romania, which is just too bad. But anyway, 
I think it's time to bring the show for an end today. For today, if you hate us, you're probably right. So can or Flemish. So consider funding the show <laughs> by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, you can drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. I would like to once again thank everybody who supports the show. It means a lot to us, and I actually never... I guess I never anticipated how much it would, like, motivate me, but it does, so... Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of Doomsday play you out. Let's go.